Colossians chapter 4. Let me read starting in verse 2 through verse 6 and then lead us in prayer. Paul writes this to the Colossian church. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Would you bow with me? Thank you, our Father, for the gospel message that you have given to us that has saved us. Thank you for confidence that we have in that message, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a message that not only is hopeful for him, but is hopeful for us who are in him. That is our life. It is our sustenance. It is that by which we live. We have nothing else apart from the life that we have in Christ and his resurrection. And thank you that you have made us to be ambassadors of the truth of the gospel message. Christ crucified, risen, coming again. And thank you, Father, that you have entrusted this precious gospel message to us. You have taken eternal treasures and put them in finite and fragile and weak vessels so that it is abundantly clear that what is powerful is the message of the gospel and not the vessels that carry it. And Father, we look at this task of carrying the gospel not just to the nations but to our own community and we recognize that it is just what we have sung. It is a task that is unfinished. And so would you make us faithful to carry out our obligations in this task and make us joyful in it, make us effective in it, make us bold in it, make us wise in it. And even, Father, as we think about the gospel message and evangelism again, would you give us a a renewed passion and a renewed vigor and a renewed delight in carrying the message Again, not just to the nations, but to our own community. To take it across the street to our neighbors. To take it inside our home to our families. And that we might be pleased to experience the joy of much fruit through our gospel witness. And so we commend ourselves to you. Would you take this word and transform us by it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Randy Newman introduces his book, Bringing the Gospel Home, witnessing to family members, close friends, and others who know you well by writing this. When I informed a friend that I was writing a book on witnessing to family, he told me he had the perfect chapter titles for me. Chapter 1, Don't Do It. 
Chapter 2, don't do it. Chapter 3, did you think I was kidding? Chapter 4, pray for someone else to do it. Chapter 5, review chapters 1, 2, and 3. He then offered several first-hand stories, Newman writes, about how not to witness to family. And he had more from where those came from. Since then, many others have volunteered the same kinds of illustrations to me. Apparently, horror stories outnumber success stories in evangelism. I understand that most Christians are not evangelists. Consequently, for them, evangelism is not easy. A problem often arises because many of the people who speak and write about evangelism are evangelists. For them, evangelism is easy. It's as natural as breathing. They can't imagine not witnessing to anyone and everyone who comes their way. And they tend to make the rest of us feel guilty. They say, quote, I cannot sleep at night unless I've witnessed to at least one soul that day, end quote. When I hear that and I've found I am not alone, I usually think I sleep just fine. Or they tell how they always pray for a witnessing opportunity as they sit down at their seat on an airplane. I pray for an empty seat next to me. When we're told that witnessing should come naturally, we're set up for failure and frustration. For the vast majority of Christians, evangelism never seems natural and never flows easily. As a result, we often fall into one of several pits. Either we sound like someone we're not, evangelizing with a different tone of voice than we use for every other topic, or we wait for it to feel right or easy, and when that doesn't happen, we clam up, or we beat up on ourselves for not being bold enough, smart enough, or quick enough. Thus, we tell people good news, but sound more racked with guilt than liberated by grace. And these are just the potential problems with witnessing to strangers or acquaintances, witnessing to family members, the ones who have known us the longest, seen us at our worst, and are the least likely to fall for our facades seems infinitely more daunting. You're allowed to say amen. Those words resonated with me when I first read them a decade ago, and my guess is that they resonate with you as well. One of our goals for this year is to think about the theme, Excelling Still More, to continue in the process of loving one another in the body of Christ, to caring well for one another. And one of the ways that we care well for one another is through communicating the gospel in evangelistic opportunities and seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and then folding them into the body of Christ here at Grace where we can love them still more. So today I want to think with you about our growing commitment to excellence in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ by answering this question. How can we be more effective in communicating the gospel? How can we excel still more in communicating the gospel, in being more evangelistic? I want to answer it with three words from Colossians chapter 4. Three words to guide our thinking in answering this question. How can we be more effective in communicating the gospel? And the three words are simply pray, live, and speak. Pray, live, 
and speak. Let me start unfolding those for you from this chapter. First, we come across Paul's admonition to pray in verses 2 through 4, and it becomes very clear very quickly that he's not just talking about prayer in a general sense, but he's talking about prayer with a view towards evangelism. And the first thing he's going to remind his readers to do is to pray diligently. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. He's talking about faithful praying. What does faithful praying look like? It, it, it is persistent. Devote yourselves means to be continually united to God in prayer. That word devotion has the idea of, of being in attendance with someone. You're nearby someone. You're in pro, close proximity with someone. You're connected to another person. And the verb as well is a present tense. So he said this ought to be the continual, habitual, regular part of your life. You ought, you ought to be regularly connecting to, aligned with, next to, in close proximity to God in prayer. That just ought to be the way we live. He adds to that idea in the middle of the verse, keeping alert in it. So there's a watchfulness, an attendance, a paying attention, both to the needs of the people and to the answers that come from God. May I just give you a, a, a little tip in what to do? And I think I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but... But one of the ways we demonstrate alertness is, is by praying with people when they're with us. And so when they, when they unfold a problem before you and say, I've got this burden, this need, we just say, can I pray with you? That it triggers an, an understanding in their minds that we're alert, we're paying attention, we're thinking, we're engaged, we're processing. So devote yourselves. Be alert. And be thankful. Faithful praying is thankful praying. The one who prays faithfully recognizes God's grace in every answer. Even when God answers no. Or wait. Or not yet. Or just with silence. And you don't know. What is he saying? Paul says... Verse 2, pray with an attitude of thankfulness. I've entrusted it to the Lord. I've given it to Him. I can be thankful. So pray with diligence. Second part of our prayer is that we ought to be praying for opportunities. I said that Paul's prayer here is focused particularly on the gospel. You wouldn't necessarily pick that up in verse 2, but it becomes very clear in verse 3. Where he says, part of your prayers, he says, praying at the same time for us as well. So, so pray for me and those who are with me as we are traveling, or in this case, he's in Rome imprisoned. So pray for me and those who are in Rome with me, ministering to me, and pray in a very particular way, he says, that God will open up to us a door for the word. I want an open door. An open door to speak something about the Word of God, to speak something about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To pray for an open door implies several 
different truths or realities. One, it implies that we are dependent on the Lord to create gospel and ministry opportunities. If there's an opportunity to speak the gospel, it's God who's made the way available. If there's a, a, an opportunity to come alongside someone and help that particular person, it's God who's made that opportunity available. And when we pray for the opportunity, we're saying, we need you, God, to open this door. We can't force the gospel in on our own. You're going to have to make the way clear. A second reality by this prayer is that we understand that God is moved by our prayers. God responds to our prayers. Now, I know I've just opened up a theological can of worms. Don't try and just solve it. Just pray and understand that God is moved and compelled by our prayers. He answers our prayers. The third thing I want you to notice is that Paul says, open up to us a door for the word. Now, if I were to go to the back of this room, I could go up to a door and I could push on that door and I don't know what's on the other side. Well, that's not completely true. There is a window in that door, but it's a small window. And when we say open a door... We're acknowledging, I don't know what's on the other side of that. I don't know where that's going to lead. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. When we say, open up a door of opportunity, we say we are willing to proceed through that door no matter where it takes us. We don't know where that evangelistic outcome or interaction is going to take us. We don't know what the outcome will be. I just want the opportunity and I'm going to go through it regardless of what happens. If someone rejects me, if someone repudiates the gospel, if someone accepts the gospel and trusts Christ, doesn't matter. I'm going through the door. I'm going to be faithful to the opportunity God gives me. And with all of this, notice that Paul says, pray for us as well. He's asking for prayer for himself and that That means two things. One, the Apostle Paul needed prayer for boldness in evangelism. We see that as well in in Ephesians chapter 6, right? The Apostle Paul needed the doors open to him as well. The Apostle Paul needed encouragement of prayers. And if Paul needs it, then we need it too, don't we? And then along with that, If Paul is asking for prayer, part of our ministry is not just, God, would you open a door of of gospel opportunity for me? But will you open a gospel door of opportunity for my brother, Rob, for my sister, my wife, Regine, for my friend, Glenn? Would you would you open these doors of opportunities for them? Brothers and sisters, part of our part of our gospel ministry is to pray for each other in our gospel influences and upholding each other. So pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities for yourself. Pray for opportunities for others. And then pray for words. Middle of verse 3, I think your outline says verse 4. It actually starts in the middle of verse 3 and goes through verse 4. Pray for us a... That God will open a door of opportunity for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That mystery in the New Testament simply means 
there's been a revelation about Jesus Christ, which we now have that has been hidden previously. So we didn't know it before. And now it has been revealed. And so Paul is saying, I want you to pray that I will be able to speak about the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? The mystery of Christ is that he is the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament Messiah. And he has come to be crucified, risen and ascended into heaven where he will again return for his people. I want to tell people the gospel of Christ. So that they're no longer shrouded in the mystery. And Paul is asking for two particular things as we look at verses 3 and 4. He's asking, one, for opportunities. Pray that God will give me the opportunity to speak. That the door will be open. That I can unfold the riches of the message of the gospel of Christ. And then secondly, he says in verse 4, Pray for clarity. So we want to pray for opportunity to talk. Sometimes you'll get on an airplane or be next to somebody in a line at the grocery store and something comes up about the gospel and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you more about it? No. Okay. Conversation's done. And so Paul says, would you, would you pray that there's going to be an opportunity that I say to someone sitting next to me or standing next to me or someone in my family, can I tell you the truth about the gospel? Yes. Tell me more. Well, I'd love to tell you. Here's the truth. So pray for that opportunity. And then verse four, play, pray for clarity. When we preach the gospel, the one thing we don't want to do is, is make it cloudy, make it indistinct, make it undiscernible. And worst of all, we don't want to say something incorrect about the gospel. And so Paul says that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So there's a way to speak about the gospel, and I want to be clear with it. I don't want it to be distorted. Listen carefully. We are not responsible to save people. We are responsible to be clear with the gospel. I can't change anyone's heart, but I can be clear in communicating the gospel. And so Paul says, would you pray with me that I would be clear with this gospel? Now, as Paul talks about the gospel in these verses, it's interesting that he says very little about what to say about the gospel But his emphasis in these verses is on prayer about the gospel. He talks more about prayer and he talks more about the way we ought to live because of the gospel than what we are to say about the gospel. And it's a reminder to us that prayer is the foundation of our gospel opportunities. I'm reminded of that just about every day. Because living with an evangelist She tells me almost every day, I roll out of bed in the morning and I pray and say, Lord, where are we going to go today with the gospel? And she comes home just about every day with a gospel story. And it starts with prayer that says, God, where are you going to take me with the gospel today? Starts with prayer. God is always going to accomplish his purposes of salvation with every person. 
No person that has been called will be left uncalled. If he is chosen, he will bring them in. We can be sure of that. No one will get left unsaved who was designed for salvation. But from our perspective, the gospel is dependent on our preparedness to give it, and that happens through prayer. Listen to what Newman says again in his book, Bringing the Gospel Home. I'm more motivated to pray when I think of evangelism as something impossible. Jesus told us no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. He also told us apart from me, you can do nothing. I put those truths together and I see that evangelism, I see evangelism as something that requires a miracle on both sides of the conversation. For my unsaved relatives to come to Christ, God has to work supernaturally to draw them. For me to say anything that can ring true in their work, in their ears, God has to work supernaturally in me. When I remember that, I pray more and rely on my rhetorical skills less. He continues, in his excellent book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller makes the case that prayer equals helplessness. He contends God wants us to come to him empty-handed, weary, and heavy-laden. We receive Jesus because we were weak, and that's how we follow him. Time in prayer makes you even more dependent on God because you don't have as much time to get things done. Every minute spent in prayer is one less minute where you can do something, quote-unquote, productive. So the act of praying means you have to rely more on God. Newman continues, When we pray... For the salvation of our family, we release them to God. We relinquish a prideful belief that their salvation is dependent on us. We admit that perhaps the only thing we can do is pray. And our prayers work in two directions. They pry loose our fingers from the control we thought we had on our relatives. And they ask God to work in wooing ways in the hearts of our relatives. Isn't that helpful? What can you do to help yourself pray for the gospel? Let me just give you a couple of things to think about. This is not in the text. This is just some of the things you might think about, and maybe this will trigger some more ideas for you. What can you do to help yourself with the gospel? One, make a list and pray for specific people. Don't just pray generally. God, there are a lot of unsaved people in Granbury. Would you save them? Well, that I mean, that's true. But think about some of the specific people in Granbury that you know, that you interact with, that you engage with, and pray specifically for them. Someone has suggested making a three-by-five card for a person for whom you are praying, and then jot a verse down on that card that relates to them and their life situation, and then pull that card out and pray that verse for that person. That's a great idea. Second thing, pray for others' opportunities for the gospel. And we just, we just need to be really helpful in loving each other and praying for each other as we're interacting with the gospel. So when you tell me, 
Hey, I'm going to go see my family. I'm traveling out of state. I'm going to go see mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, whatever. And they don't know the gospel. And uh, pray for me an opportunity. I want to pray for you that opportunity. And pray that you be bold. Pray that you be wise. Take, pray that you take advantage of the opportunity that arises. That you, you not just even pray for the opportunity, but you say, Lord, I'm, I'm praying for openness of the door. And you go push on the door for a little bit and see, is it going to open? Before just assuming, well, it looks like it closed and locked doors, so I'm just not even going to push on it. No, check it out. Push on it. See what happens. We need to pray for one another in that regard. Third thing, don't stop praying. Persistence develops our patience and reminds us every time we pray that we are dependent on the Lord. Just because someone says no to the gospel, just because someone says, I'm not interested, doesn't mean that's the final word. Lots of people have said no and trusted Christ later. Keep praying. Keep seeking opportunities. Keep pushing on the door. That's pray. That's the first word. Secondly, live. Live the gospel. Live the gospel. Notice verse 5. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. That is, conduct yourselves has the idea of living life. So as you're engaging in life, live with wisdom as it relates to those who are outside the church. So live wisely. And the, the emphasis here in the way Paul has constructed this is not on conduct yourselves, but the emphasis is on wisdom. We need God's wisdom to live wisely and in this world. In fact, this, this idea of needing God's wisdom has actually been a theme of Paul's throughout this letter. For instance, Colossians 1, 9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're praying for you that you will know God's wisdom, implication that you'll know how to live wisely. 128, we proclaim him. This is a gospel message. Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Our goal with the gospel is to see them respond and then teach them so that they grow in that wisdom and are complete in Christ. 2.3, speaking about Christ, he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We preach Christ because where else are you going to find wisdom? 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell with, within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We, we need wisdom that comes from this word to live life. And, and, and this, is, this is the content of Paul's prayer and his admonition as to how we are to live. Conduct yourself with wisdom. Live the gospel. Live differently. Because the gospel has informed how to live this life. So to this, as those who are outsiders, and as you're interacting with them, notice he says in verse 5, you're conducting yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, not just in the body, but 
But the presumption is you're interacting with people around you who are not believers. They're outside the body of Christ and you want to live with wisdom around them. So that they see. Something is different about you. A couple of questions. Do unbelievers look at your life and say. He's. He's living differently than he used to. She's making wise choices. She's hardworking, trustworthy, faithful, kind, generous. She's different. What is it that made her different? Second question, is my conduct toward outsiders wise? Is my conduct with them conducive to them wanting to hear the gospel? Third question, is the word of God living richly within you? 316. That's a question with gospel implications. The gospel and the word of God living in my life in wise ways is not just about me. It's about how it influences other people. An article a few years ago in the U.S. News and World Report said this. Quote, American culture is an enormously powerful force. Listen to what they say. It will change religion just as religion will change culture. And then U.S. News observes this. Already... Evangelicals are more shaped by culture than they are capable of shaping it to their own needs. I don't think that secular magazine is wrong, by and large. I don't think it's right about Grace Bible Church. But I do think it's right about the state of the church in America. And so the question for us when Paul says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. Am I being shaped by the culture or is the culture shaping me? And I want the gospel to shape me. This might be moving from preaching to meddling. But is it possible that one reason others around us are not attracted to the gospel and that we are not interested in communicating it is that it really isn't changing us? And we don't look any different than anybody else? And why would they want what we have to give when we're living in the same starry place as they are? Conduct yourself with wisdom. Live the gospel. And live it clearly within the culture. Secondly, he says... Under the category of live, look for opportunities. Middle of verse five, making the most of the opportunity. We not only want to live in a way that demonstrates we love the gospel, but we also want to take advantage of the opportunities that are given to us. The word the word opportunities here is actually one of the words for time. There's a couple different words for time in the New Testament. One of the words is a kind of a chronological like. Um, Pastor Terry has 26 minutes left. I wonder if he's going to stop on time. 
It's chronological time. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about seasons and epochs. This is the season for preaching. And we're not talking about the hour, 1134. We're talking about this is the season. This is the time of life. This is the crucible in which the gospel message must be preached. Because if we don't give the gospel, then what will we give them to change the world? It's the season. It's the time. That's the word Paul's using here. And he says, make the most of the opportunity. The season is short. And you don't know how long you're going to have. And take advantage of this time and this opportunity. So that the gospel will go forth. What can you do to help yourself live the gospel? Let me just give you three or four things. One, be faithful to let the gospel examine your life and regularly confess sin and then rest in the forgiveness of Christ. Don't just talk about the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. Practice the means of the gospel, the ordinary means of grace, confession, forgiveness, restoration. That ought to be as part of, much a part of your life spiritually as breathing is physically. So let the gospel examine your life and be changed by that gospel. Then, secondly, look for gospel opportunities around you. And there, there absolutely is a place for going around the neighborhood and knocking on doors. My guess is that there's still enough COVID fear that most people, if you show up on their door and you knock on the door or ring their doorbell and say, let me tell you about Jesus, they're going to say, let me tell you how you can leave my property really quickly. And so there is a place for that. But most of us have an abundance of relationships already with unbelievers. Some of them are are actually living in our homes. You know, they're like two and a half, three feet tall. Those aren't just kids. Those are gospel opportunities. And some of them are taller than us now, but they're still gospel opportunities in our home. And we have neighbors who are not believers And we work with people who are not believers and we have extended family who are not believers. Just look for those and take advantage of those opportunities. Thirdly, be patient. Conversion to the gospel often is a process and not instantaneous. Take the long view. You're just sowing seeds. Some days you're sowing seeds. Some days you know, well, I've already sowed the seeds. Let me add a little bit of water to it. Let me throw some fertilizer on it and see what happens. And maybe nothing starts growing that day, but maybe you just did another little action that's moving them towards in a week or a month or six months or six years or six decades. I'm going to turn around and respond to the gospel. Be patient. Give thanks. Remember verse 2, give thanks. Give thanks for where your unbelieving family members are right now. And give thanks that God has put them in your life. Give thanks that God is sovereign over them and you are not. Give thanks that God's timing is right and yours is not. Give thanks that God is trustworthy in the midst of these situations says Newman in most cases these people are going to be in your life for a long time 
it would be nice for them to know you're interested in something besides Jesus. You just, you're part of family, you're part of relationship and you incorporate them in that way. Pray, live, third word, speak. Verse 6 is often used as a verse about how we ought to talk in general. And it certainly can be applied that way, but that's not what Paul means. When Paul talks about speech in verse 6, he's not talking about our general habits of speech. He's talking about our gospel speech and how we ought to conduct ourselves with our words when we're talking about the gospel. Two observations. One. We need to speak graciously and boldly with the gospel. So let your speech. Remember, he's asked for words, for speech, verse three, for clarity in speaking, verse four, for wisdom in relating to outsiders. You can't relate to outsiders without speaking. Verse five, it's really clear. Verse six, when he says speech, he's talking about evangelism. And in our evangelistic efforts, he says ought to always be, those words ought to always be with grace, pleasant, attractive, truthful, loving, winsome, engaging. Because the message of the gospel is grace, the means by which we communicate it ought also to be with grace. There is a time to get in people's kitchen. I think we're far too prone. Let me rephrase that. I think I am far too prone to getting into people's kitchen and not nearly as quick to be gracious and gentle and winsome. Being gracious. We ought to think about it this way. Our words ought to be like they are, as though seasoned with salt. Gracious words are salty words. And salty words are the kind of words that make us, make the hearer say, that's interesting. Would you tell me more? It gives them a taste for the gospel. It makes them thirsty for the gospel. It makes them want to hear more of what you have to say about Jesus Christ, your Savior. This is exactly what our Savior was like. Um, Yes, he was bold with the Pharisees, but they were those who were inside the church who were perverting church. I use that term loosely. They were within religious establishment, and they were perverting the truth about God and the gospel. And so he was, he gave them words of condemnation, but, but as he related to most people around him, they perceived him as gentle, gracious, compassionate. Listen, Luke 4, 22, and all were speaking well of him, of Jesus, and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, this is the carpenter's kid. How did he get so eloquent and gracious with words? Where's this coming from? You can just hear. Tell us more. That's the gospel. 
Speaking graciously doesn't mean that we don't speak boldly when we're given the opportunity to speak the gospel. Doesn't mean we apologize or back away from the gospel. But it does mean that we speak it. And we speak it graciously. And we look for opportunities. Speak graciously. Speak boldly. Speak discerningly. Paul says at the end of this section, verse 6, let your words be with grace so that, here's the purpose, you will know how you should respond to each person. So each person that you interact with that needs the gospel, when you speak graciously towards them, and that is your goal, to speak graciously, you'll be given the wisdom that you know how to, how to interact with them. What do they need in this moment? Do they need correction? Do they need clarification about the gospel? Do they need understanding about a particular passage of scripture or a theological truth about God? How can I get to the gospel in their particular circumstance? Every person, every circumstance is different. And Paul says you want to be, you want to be discerning about how you're going to relate the gospel to that particular person. And that means you gotta, you gotta know the person to whom you're speaking. One writer tells a story about a woman named Padma. Padma's father, he says, was a Hindu priest who responded to his daughter's salvation testimony by yelling, If you ever walk into a church again, I will kill myself! I don't know if I recommend Padma's response as a universal prescription for all who may find themselves in such a situation, but her reply was, Oh no you want, won't, stop being so dramatic. On what basis could she say that? She knew her father. She was discerning. And she was clear with the gospel. Bold with the gospel. What can you do to help yourself speak the gospel? One, learn the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, you need to figure out what the gospel is. Um, you ought to have a means of communicating the gospel. I've developed a way that I can say the gospel in a really short number of words. And sometimes people are coming to talk to me about something and and uh, I know that I, I've only got one or two sentences to give them. And sometimes I'll even incorporate it into a prayer as I'm praying for them. And uh, I'll say something like, um, you do understand that there's only there's only one hope and you're hopeless. And the only hope is to believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that he died on the cross for your sins and he gives you his righteousness if you believe in him. It's a simple gospel. It's the gospel in one sentence. And then I've got a more expanded gospel. It takes me five or ten minutes to unpack. And I base it on six words. Um, love. Uh, yeah, it, it's right at the tip of my tongue. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. I've got a Bible verse for each of those. They're in my head most of the time. And I can walk them through that. I can pick up if I, if I think they understand grace, but they don't understand man's depravity and man's sin. I might start with man and, their, and his sin. Maybe they understand man and his sin and they understand their wretchedness. And I'll talk about God and his demand for righteousness and Christ and his provision of righteousness. And how we get that through faith with the goal of the hope of being with him in eternity. See, I've just given you the gospel in 
Two minutes again, one minute. Learn the gospel. You might find it in Ephesians 2. You might find it in in Romans chapters 3 to 6 and just have that in your head. Walking somebody through it. You might use a track, keep tracks with you. Generally, when I travel, I'll grab a handful of tracks and take them with me because I I think I'm going to see people that I wouldn't ordinarily see. I want to leave something in their hands. So learn the gospel. Secondly, cultivate your own daily joy in the gospel. I think sometimes we're reticent to speak because we just don't see the influence of the gospel in our own lives. The gospel has stopped being exciting to us, joyful to us, delighting to us. So cultivate your own joy in the gospel. Ask questions when you're interacting with people, including, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about your spiritual life? Just because they say no doesn't mean I'm going to shut it down immediately, but often if they say no emphatically enough, it's like, okay, they're not ready. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be obstinate. Uh, but ask questions. Engage with them. Um, what do you like? What do you like to do? What do you like to read? Show an interest in them beyond just that they're a spiritual conquest for you, right? You don't want them to walk away thinking, well, he fulfilled his duty to me today. Uh, just ask questions. Engage like they're real people. Because they are. Study them, fourthly, to see where they are spiritually. If they're not interested in spiritual things, giving them the gospel is going to be like giving an iPhone to a newborn baby. It's just not a category to that two-day-old infant and what to do with that iPhone. Just wait and engage them in pre-gospel conversations. What are you reading? What do you like to read? Why is that book helpful to you? What do you get from that book? Why is that movie? Why is that song helpful to you, meaningful to you? Do you ever speak about, think about spiritual things? What do you like to do in your free time? Why is that of interest to you? How does that benefit you? What's the end game in that? What's, what's your joy in it? Why, why is that so satisfying to you? What do you like to do in your free time? Why is that of interest to you? If you had to sum up your philosophy of life in a couple of sentences, what would you say? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? What's the goal? How's that found fulfillment in your life? Brothers and sisters, most of us are not gifted in evangelism. And it's it's difficult for us. And that means just like people don't lose weight, read their Bibles, faithfully pay their bills, or go to the work by accident, so we won't share the gospel by accident. It's not going to happen. It takes prayer. It takes wise living. It takes words to communicate the gospel. And all those things take planning. We're growing in those skills as a church, but we want to excel still more. We want to excel in evangelism so that we can bring them into the body, so that we can love on them and care for them still more effectively as members of the body of Christ. That's what it means to... Shepherd God's people. Before someone can be mature in Christ, he first has to trust Christ. And being committed to shepherding and loving God's people in this church means being committed to reaching the unbelieving with the gospel of Christ and bring them into the church. 
So how do we excel still more in evangelism? Pray diligently for opportunities, for boldness, and for words with the unbelieving. Live what he desires for those, live what he desires for those who believe the gospel, and then speak the truth of what he has given us with gracious, appropriate, well-timed words. And as we pursue greater excellence in evangelism, let's pray and wait and see what God will do through our pursuit of excelling still more. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of the gospel and what the gospel has done to save us and for the privilege of taking that gospel to others. Would you make us more effective with this gospel so that others are enfolded into our body and that we can love them, not just with a general kind of love that we have for all people, but with a particular kind of love that is given to those who are in Christ. And so, Father, would you, would you help us to excel still more? We are grateful for progress that we are making individually and corporately with the gospel. Would you make us to excel still more with the gospel? We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.